How human is your organization? I don't mean how many humans work in your office or a percentage of tasks are automated. I mean, how are people treated? Are they told what to do, how to do it, and supervised until the deadline? Are they expected to work at odd hours with no time to refresh or reset? According to a recent Gallup poll, just 34% of US workers say they're engaged. And while that's the highest in history, it's still shockingly low, just four percentage points higher than it was a decade ago. Ariana Huffington has visions of catapulting that number far higher through her work at Thrive Global, the company she founded in 2016 as a way to end burnout for good. And all it takes, she says, is 60 seconds a day. I'm Chris Weller, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work from the NeuroLeadership Institute. In today's episode, I'm joined by Ariana Huffington, author and CEO of Thrive Global, and Dr. David Rock, co-founder and CEO of the NeuroLeadership Institute. We discuss the problems of an always-on culture, how to stay balanced at work, and what role leaders play in keeping their organizations human. Ariana and David, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. There's so much we can talk about when it comes to the role that stress and fulfillment and reward plays in our daily lives. We spend so much time at work relative to any other place except maybe sleeping. I wanted to start in a place talking about kind of the current state of affairs. How does modern work in the way that it operates today either help people feel fulfilled or inhibit people's jobs? So as we know, um, ever since the first industrial revolution, we started making the mistake of treating human beings like machines. And the goal of a machine is to minimize downtime. And the goal of software is to minimize downtime. So for some reason, we bought into the delusion that that is also the goal for human beings. And as a result, we now have this epidemic of burnout and stress, which the World Health Organization in May acknowledged as a real workplace syndrome that has a huge impact both on our health, our mental health, and our performance. And uh, all that has been compounded by a growing addiction to our phones. So as things were bad enough <laughs> before the addiction to the phones, but now the fact that we are all at least slightly addicted and there is no end to our working day, and even when we end our working day, we're addicted to other things like social media or games or simply checking our inbox and our texts at all times. So that has created this real epidemic that is having a huge impact both on our health and on our mental health. That's really well put. I just finished a, a new edition of Your Brain at Work, which is the most recent book of mine. And, and I was reading back over how kind of I was thinking about overwhelm 10 years ago when I first wrote it. And it was like luxurious, you know. <laughs> it was like, imagine we could go back 10 years um, and, and we kind of look back. But what we're forgetting is that this is probably the least overwhelmed we'll be compared to 10 years from Very now. And that if we don't take steps, we're going to kind of it is going to continue. And I, I'm reminded of when, when cars first came out, we sort of went from horseback speed, which was very slow, you know, eight miles an hour or something, to automotive speed, which was suddenly 30 or 40 miles an hour. And there were no road rules or speed limits. or stri- It was just like drive and people would just get killed. And, and it was terrible, terrible. And, and it took a while for road rules and speed limits to actually be put in place with this thing that could go faster. Well, 
information now can go from car speed to the speed of light, uh, but there's no rules for how to interact with all that possibility of information. And I think that we're starting to see some principles come in, but I think we're going to see more and more kind of thoughtful application of road rules and speed limits to just the digestion of information as we go. I love that. That is so true because if you think of the iPhone being about 10 years old, there are really no rules of the road, including as parents, you know, as we work with many companies, we are finding that one of the biggest sources of stress for employees who have children is what's happening to their children. Mm. And uh, the growing incidence of anxiety, depression, even suicides um, is becoming an absolutely dominant theme because this is happening more and more now. Mm. It correlates quite directly with the rise of smartphones. So we have this reality that we've kind of painted. Let's actually take it more from a scientific point of view for a second. What's, what's going on to the person in a daily interaction at work when they're in this kind of state? If they're bombarded with all of these things, pulling them and their notifications um, and these demands, are they operating at their full capacity? Well, there, there are three big ideas that we should all understand about the brain uh, in the workplace. We, we think there are three kind of big groups of ideas. And, and one is around just general capacity. What is our capacity to process information? Um, secondary is around kind of what, how does motivation work? And the third is around bias. And so we see those as kind of the three big chunks that every organization should be designing their processes around capacity, motivation, and bias. And, and capacity is just literally understanding uh, your brain's ability to, to just process, um, you know, like noticing that we have most of our creative thoughts in the morning. Uh, that's when we in have the all shower, that in the right? shower, right? <laughs> uh, but sort of like respecting that and noticing the correlation between noise in your brain um, and ability to focus is important. You know, the more noise you have, the fewer insights and creative ideas you have, but also just the harder it is to focus. So I think there's a whole world of insight around working memory capacity an insight capacity that kind of comes down to we, we, we need to be doing less and be able to be more focused and have more quiet time. And so we're trying to educate people about that. I know you're working in a similar space, but how, how do we kind of get people to be more disciplined with their inputs so they can focus and actually, you know, get work done? That's how we see it. Maybe more intentional with disconnecting or unplugging to give yourself the time that people might be robbing you of. Even like the, we, we try to schedule meetings, you know, if it's a 30-minute meeting, it's a 25-minute meeting. So we've got the five minutes. If it's an hour, it's 50 minutes. So you've got time just to like have some minutes to reflect, you know, collect your thoughts, use a restroom, get a cup of tea, just let your brain quietly mind wander. And you have all of these insights in that time. Um, and do we achieve that every time? Definitely not. But probably more than, well, more than half the time in our meetings, we manage that. Um, and so you're leaving that buffer for the brain to kind of reflect and catch up. So there are all sorts of little tips and, and techniques that I'm, I'm sure you guys are No, absolutely. As well. And uh, we break down everything we, we suggest to our clients and um, the consumers we interact with to what we call micro steps, you know, tiny, daily, incremental steps that um, become daily habits. And we break them down to really tiny ones, like... In the morning, take 60 seconds to set your intention for the day or to remember what you're grateful for or to breathe consciously before you go to your phone. 
if somebody says, I don't have 60 seconds, then they don't have a life. Right. But if you tell people take five minutes, they may not do it. So we try to break it down to, to an act that you cannot say no to if you're at all sane. Right. <laughs> and so, again, as you know, David, the science is very clear that how you start your day and how you end your day are pretty critical. Mm. And how you end your day is particularly important when it comes to priming your brain for sleep. And the majority of people end their day by being on their phone, in their bed, answering texts, emails, or scrolling through social media, whatever they're doing. And then when they get too tired to even look at their phone, turning off the light and leaving the phone Mm. on their nightstand which is absolutely insane because um, you're you're tired, you're physically tired, so you're going to fall asleep, but your brain has not really come down. So it's going to wake you up in the middle of the night. And this is the most unproductive time, and we've all had it, when your brain actually goes through every unresolved issue in your life and your work. At a very moment when there's nothing you can do. Oh, I shouldn't have said that thing 10 years ago. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So for us, you know, one of our over 700 micro steps is exactly about how do you end your day. And what we ask people is to declare an end to their day. There is really no end to our day. So we need to actually declare an end. And people learn through rituals. So for us, the ritual that is like, that marks the end of your day should be turning off your phone and charging it outside your bed. I love that idea of the micro steps and declaring the end of your day. Um, I'd be curious to hear what your current micro steps and, and end of your day ritual looks like. So I have a... Um, I have a 30-minute end to my day, but we recommend that people start with five. You know, I kind of build to it. And my ritual is turning off my phone 30 minutes before I want to turn off the lights, having a hot bath, um, which I love because mm, it's, it's not really for cleanliness. It's more like for mm. your brain becomes a little bit more like mush. <laughs> and if you don't like baths, have a very hot shower. Mm, it's good for sleep. It's excellent mm. for sleep. Then I... Again, based on the latest science, wear dedicated clothes to sleep. Even if you're wearing a T-shirt, don't wear the same T-shirt that you wear to the mm-hmm. gym. It's like don't send your your brain confusing messages. Confusing signals, yeah. And in bed, I only read real books. And I read real books that have nothing to do with my work, mm. nothing to do with the neuroscience of the brain, yeah. David. <laughs> um, but there, it's poetry, it's philosophy, it's novels. You know, something that takes me away from my world. It's very restful um, and good for uh, good for pleasant dreams as well. Yes, exactly. After a short break, we'll talk more with Ariana and David about what exactly leaders can do to set their employees up for success. Stay with us. Your Brain at Work isn't just a podcast. It's also a smartwatch and a coffee maker. Okay, not really, but it is a blog too. If you're someone who can't get enough of the science-business combo, you can devour article after article on a full menu of topics. Culture change, diversity, inclusion, learning, and more. Each one is sure to leave you with a fresh, science-based perspective on some of the oldest challenges facing leaders and organizations. To visit the Your Brain at Work blog, visit neuroleadership.com slash blog. 
So let's say we take all of these steps. We, we declare at the end of our day, we get good sleep, we build in the, our technology to serve us rather than being pulled from it. Um, what cascades from that in our, our daily work life with other people, how we treat people? Um, what can we expect when we start doing all these things for ourselves? Maybe I'll add to that first. I know you've done a lot of work on sleep. One of the things that really jumped out to me about a good sleep is when you don't have good sleep, you only remember the negative things. Um, you don't remember positive experiences when you're suffering from poor sleep and um, you're, you're overall negatively focused. There's also, and I've written about this, it's, uh, we need to get to a point where organizations think of lack of sleep the same way they think of alcohol use. So, you know, if someone like really has had two or three nights of very poor sleep, you know, significantly fewer hours than normal, they shouldn't be undertaking a task that has any risk. They shouldn't be driving a train or flying a plane or, you know, other things that, that require, you know, good cognition. And so, so we need to be, be able to think like that as a, as a rule because it literally is, has the same effect. Not enough sleep has the same cognitive effect as, you know, a, a very well-defined number of drinks. You're over the limit after mm-hmm. uh, a few hours short is, is what we start to see. And the, the effects last for multiple days as well. And as well as the cognitive impact, uh, there is an impact when it comes to empathy mm. and creativity. And so even if you are not driving a train or a pla- or um, piloting a plane, um, if you're managing a team, you're going to be less empathetic. You're going to be less uh, creative. And um, so it's really absolutely crucial to recognize how connected sleep and recharging throughout the day, like the little breaks that um, Dave mentioned to to recharge during the day, how important they are for performance. So even if somebody didn't care about anything else in their lives, they didn't care about their health, their happiness, their families, let's assume for a minute they're sociopaths, mm-hmm. um, their performance is affected by how they take care of themselves. And we see that with founders. I mean, we have a lot of founder stories Mm -hmm. where they buy into the founder myth that you need to be always on, and it's affecting your performance. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wrote an open letter to Elon Musk, who seems to think that he has to make every decision and be up at all times of the night, uh, tweeting things that turned out to lead to SEC investigations and and be huge distractions. Yes, you need some new habits, perhaps. Yes. Um, some interesting challenges, but what an inspiring vision he has at the same time. It must be difficult. Oh, absolutely. But that's really what is so important, that um, to be an amazing leader like he is, an incredible visionary, but at the same time be buying into a very unscientific mm. and outmoded view of um, uh, perfecting your performance. I mean, when I collapsed from exhaustion and burnout two years into building HuffPost, I had become disconnected. Like Mm -hmm. if you had asked me that morning, Ariana, how are you? I would have said fine Mm -hmm. because I had come to associate running on empty as fine. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the sad thing that you lose track of um, yourself fully charged. A lot of leaders listen to this podcast and probably walk away thinking, okay, what can I do tomorrow? Maybe what are those micro steps I can do for my team? What are the ways that they can kind of build these healthier habits into their organization? 
One of the things that we bring into our workshops um, and our digital programs is um, the recognition that we want to hire people who are fully engaged. We don't want to hire people who want a nine-to-five job or who want to chill under a mango tree, Mm -hmm. but to recognize that there may be times when you have to pull an all-nighter. There may be times when you have to work over the weekend because you have a presentation or a conference you're planning or whatever. What we do and what we recommend to our partners and clients to do is to then take Thrive time off Mm. immediately after. If you've worked over the weekend and you go to work Monday as though you had actually recharged over the weekend, you're going to be less effective. You are much more likely to get sick because your immune system is suppressed. So everybody's better off Mm. to take a Thrive Day, as we call them, and fully recharge and come back. So I think that has been game-changing because, first of all, it, it recognizes the fact that there's no really great job that starts at 9 and ends at 5, right? The body works best with, like, intensity and then recovery, intensity and recovery, and the brain is similar. There's nothing wrong with some intensity, then you need the recovery time. That's how you build muscles. It's probably how you build brains as well. But intensity and then recovery is really important. Um, I think respecting that is, is key. Respecting that and, and treating recovery the way athletes do as an essential part of, of intensity and winning games. Like if you were an elite athlete, you wouldn't just show up sleep-deprived for a game or having just eaten food that's yeah, not digestible. <laughs> I do something every August. I have a half-time August where I have four long weekends, each one. So I basically only work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday for all of August. And I'm usually somewhere outside the city. And I just have a lot more time to think Mm. and process. And I end up doing some of my best work, actually. So I just take a month where I'm literally at halftime of the normal pace. I've done that for five or six years. It's tremendously helpful for my own kind of balance and thinking and time with my family and as well. So there's some practices like that. And also sends an important message to your team. So I'm hearing that it's important, Ariana, to communicate as a leader that sometimes the expectation, we, we know how important expectation matching is for people to, you might be expected to work on these odd hours, but you should also expect that they'll be given the latitude and the flexibility to receive some time off in what would otherwise be working hours. We call it Thrive Time, right. and, that we, and we want you to take it right after the intensity. Because again, we are discovering all these things as mm. we are instituting these practices. And there are people who thought, oh, I'm going to take these two days and tack them in to the end of my vacation. No, it's use them or lose them. Yeah, yeah. No, it's important. I don't know if we have a policy around that, but I find myself saying that to people a lot. If you've just had an intense time, make sure you get some downtime, some but recovery because, time. It's really important. But because a lot of what we're saying is still countercultural, you know, even with all the science we have, People still uh, brag about working around the clock, being always on. We haven't changed the culture. So because this is countercultural still, we believe that these practices need to be embedded in um, the HR rules. Mm, In the systems. In the systems. Because otherwise people are going to be very reluctant to ask for it because they still see it as indicating that they are not as dedicated to their job, that they are not as macho and as able to power through, et cetera. David, we recently talked to Dean Carter, the Patagonia CHRO, on the podcast. 
Could you say a little more about what they're up to? I think this fits in nicely. What's fascinating about Patagonia is they're doing all these experiments in thinking really systemically and long-term about humans. And they notice that a lot of their people love surfing and skiing and climbing, and they, they kind of hire nature people. And they notice that they would lose a lot of people on a Friday to go away for a long weekend. And they say, well, let's do an experiment. What if every second Friday we basically shut down and see what happens? And they, they did it in a, in a part of the business. They tested it quite a while, collected all the data, and they found actually that uh, people were much more effective. Uh, productivity went up, um, and people were incredibly happier, um, like working there, and their families were happier, they were healthier, like, they were just m- much more um, enriched as humans, not just in terms of being productive. And he's challenging us and challenging the whole summit coming up. So like, what are the practices that we need to challenge that are sort of accidental byproducts of just scaling things? Um, and, you know, what, what do we need to challenge? And it could literally be the number of days we work, where we work, how we work, when we work, who we work with, everything. Uh, and I think as we struggle with, you know, bringing the humans back into a very digital world, um, I think we've got to be willing to experiment and try things and collect real data on what actually, you know, what actually is better. Um, and it's, it's a great time to be uh, having those kinds of explorations. No, I love that. And this emphasis on the human part is actually key because we believe that so much of behavior change at the moment is based on just what's happening to your mind and not what's happening to your heart. Mm -hmm. And for us, um, the goal is to connect the two because if if we just give you micro steps um, that affect uh, the neural pathways of your brain, that's fantastic, and we know now so much about the plasticity of the brain, and it can be really effective, but if we don't touch your heart, it's not going to have the same impact. It really starts with the leaders kind of modeling the behaviors, I think, because it's, it's yes. such a top-down thing people take their cues from. I know we're close to time, so I'm mindful of that, and I wanted to wrap up soon. People can start coming in maybe five minutes later and building in time for themselves. But until they're given the permission explicitly, I think it's it's always a matter of kind of working within the system. And that builds resentment too. So, Ariana, I wanted to give you the final word before I sign off. So is there well, anything else that you wanted to... This has been great. I have actually been making notes because I, I loved what you've been saying. <laughs> and I love learning constantly. I think that's the... Um, the best thing is that the science um, keeps bringing new insights, new actionable insights uh, to our work. And, mm. and I just want to end by saying that we live at this amazing inflection point where we have actually done so much to put an end in many parts of the world to communicable diseases. And now we are dealing with um, an explosion of chronic diseases. So there's really no other solution Mm. (laughs) except changing how human beings are behaving if we want to make a dent when it comes to diabetes or heart disease or mental health. And that's why I think the area we're working in is, is just so exciting and inspiring. I love that. Ariana and David, thank you so much. It's been great. This concludes the first season of Your Brain at Work. We'll kick back up with season two in early 2020. 
But in the meantime, keep an eye on your feed as we'll have some bonus content from our annual Neuroleadership Summit held in November in New York City. Your Brain at Work is produced by the Neuroleadership Institute. You can help us in making organizations more human by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer for Your Brain at Work is Noah Gelb. Danielle Kirschenblatt is our editor. Gabriel Berezin, our associate producer. And Brian Crimmins, our sound mixer. Original music is by Grant Zubritsky. And logo design is by Catchware. A special thanks to Ariana Huffington and Dr. David Rock. And to you for listening. We'll see you next time.